0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit librivox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, chapter 23, The Famous Gondola, The Gondola in an Unromantic Aspect, The Great Square of St. Mark and the Winged Lion, Snobs at Home and Abroad, Sepulchers of the Great Dead, A Tilt at the Old Masters. A CONTRABAND GUIDE—THE CONSPIRACY—MOVING AGAIN. The Venetian gondola is as free and graceful, in its gliding movement, as a serpent. It is twenty or thirty feet long, and is narrow and deep like a canoe. Its sharp bow and stern sweep upward from the water, like the horns of a crescent with the abruptness of the curve slightly modified. The bow is ornamental, with a steel comb with a battle-axe attachment, which threatens to cut passing boats in two occasionally, but never does. The gondola is painted black, because in the zenith of Venetian magnificence the gondolas became too gorgeous altogether, and the Senate decreed that all such display must cease, and a solemn, unembellished black be substituted. If the truth were known, It would doubtless appear that rich plebeians grew too prominent in their affection of patrician show on the Grand Canal, and required a wholesome snubbing. Reverence for the hallowed past, and its traditions, keeps the dismal fashion in force now that the compulsion exists no longer. So let it remain. It is in the color of mourning. Venice mourns. The stern of the boat is decked over, and the gondolier stands there he uses a single oar, a long blade, of course, for he stands nearly erect. A wooden peg, a foot and a half high, with two slight crooks or curves in one side of it, and one in the other, projects above the starboard gunwale. Against that peg the gondolier takes a purchase with his oar, changing it at intervals to the other side of the peg, or dropping it into another of the crooks, as the steering of the craft may demand, and how in the world he can back and fill, shoot straight ahead, or flirt suddenly around a corner, and makes the oar stay in those insignificant notches, is a problem to me, and a never-diminishing matter of interest. I am afraid I study the gondolier's marvellous skill more than I do the sculptured palaces we glide among. He cuts a corner so closely now and then, or misses another gondola by such an imperceptible hair-breadth, that I feel myself scrooching, as the children say, just as one does when a buggy-wheel grazes his elbow. But he makes all his calculations with the nicest precision, and goes darting in and out among the broadway confusion of busy craft with the easy confidence of the educated hackman. He never makes a mistake. Sometimes we go flying down the great canals at such a gait that we can get only the merest glimpses into front doors, and again in obscure alleys in the suburbs we put on a solemnity suited to the silence the mildew, the stagnant waters, the clinging weeds, the deserted houses, and the general lifelessness of the place, and move to the spirit of grave meditation. The gondolier is a picturesque rascal for all. He wears no satin harness, no plumed bonnet, no silken tights. His attitude is stately. He is lithe and supple. All his movements are full of grace when his long canoe and his fine figure towering from its high perch on the stern are cut against the evening sky, they make a picture that is very novel and striking to a foreign eye. We sit in the cushioned carriage-body of a cabin, with the curtains drawn, and smoke, or read, or look out upon the passing boats, the houses, the bridges, the people, and enjoy ourselves much more than we could in a buggy jolting over our cobblestone pavements at home. This is the gentlest, pleasantest locomotion we have ever known. But it seems queer, ever so queer, to see a boat doing duty as a private carriage. We see businessmen come to the front door, step into a gondola, instead of a streetcar, and go off down-town to the counting-room we see visiting young ladies stand on the stoop and laugh and kiss good-bye and flirt their fans and say come soon now do you've been just as mean as ever you can be mother's dying to see you and we've moved into the new house oh such a love of a place so convenient to the post-office and the church and the young men's christian association and we do have such fishing, and such carrying on, and such swimming-matches in the back-yard. Oh, you must come, no distance at all, and if you go down through by St. Mark's, and the Bridge of Sighs, and cut through the alley, and come up by the church of Santa Maria dei Frari, and into the Grand Canal, there isn't a bit of current. Now do come, Sally Maria. Bye-bye." And then the little humbug trips down the steps, jumps into the gondola, says, under her breath, Disagreeable old thing, I hope she won't goes skimming away round the corner, and the other girl slams the street door and says, well, that infliction's over, anyway, but I suppose I've got to go and see her, tiresome stuck-up thing. Human nature appears to be just the same all over the world. We see the diffident young man, mild of moustache, affluent of hair, indigent of brain, elegant of costume, drive up to her father's mansion, tell his hackman to bail out and wait, start fearfully up the steps and meet the old gentleman right on the threshold, hear him ask what street the new British bank is in, as if that were what he came for, and then bounce into his boat and scurry away with his coward heart in his boots, see him come sneaking around the corner again, directly, with a crack of the curtain open toward the old gentleman's disappearing gondola, and out scampers his Susan with a flock of little Italian endearments fluttering from her lips and goes to drive with him in the watery avenues down towards the Rialto. We see the ladies go out shopping, in the most natural way, and flit from street to street and from store to store, just in the good old fashion except that they leave the gondola instead of a private carriage, waiting at the curbstone a couple of hours for them. Waiting while they make the nice young clerks pull down tons and tons of silks and velvets, and Moyer antiques and those things and then they buy a paper of pins and go paddling away to confer the rest of their disastrous patronage on some other firm and they always have their purchases sent home just in the good old way human nature is very much the same all over the world and it is so like my dear native home to see a venetian lady go into a store and buy ten cents worth of blue ribbon and have it sent home in a scow Ah, it is these little touches of nature that move one to tears in these far-off foreign lands we see little girls and boys go out in gondolas with their nurses for an airing we see staid families with prayer-book and beads enter the gondola dressed in their sunday best and float away to church and at midnight we see the theatre break up and discharge its swarm of hilarious youth and beauty we hear the cries of the hackman gondoliers and behold the struggling crowd jump aboard and the black multitude of boats go skimming down the moonlit avenues. We see them separate here and there, and disappear up divergent streets. We hear the faint sounds of laughter, and of shouted farewells floating up out of the distance. And then, the strange pageant being gone, we have lonely stretches of glittering water, of stately buildings, of blotting shadows, of weird stone faces creeping into the moonlight, of deserted bridges, of motionless boats at anchor and over all broods that mysterious stillness, that stealthy quiet that befits so well this old dreaming Venice. We have been pretty much everywhere in our gondola. We have bought beads and photographs in the stores, and wax-matches in the great square of St. Mark. The last remark suggests a digression. Everybody goes to this vast square in the evening, the military bands play in the center of it, and countless couples of ladies and gentlemen promenade up and down on either side. The platoons of them are constantly drifting away towards the old cathedral, and by the venerable column with the winged lion of St. Mark on its top, and out to where the boats lie moored, and other platoons are as constantly arriving from the gondolas and joining the great throng. Between the promenaders and the sidewalks are seated hundreds and hundreds of people at small tables, smoking and taking Granita, a first cousin to ice-cream. On the sidewalks are more employing themselves in the same way. The shops in the first floor of the tall rows of buildings, that wall in three sides of the square, are brilliantly lighted, the air is filled with music and merry voices, and altogether the scene is as bright and spirited and full of cheerfulness as any man could desire. We enjoy it thoroughly. Very many of the young women are exceedingly pretty, and dress with rare good taste. We are gradually and laboriously learning the ill manners of staring them unflinchingly in the face, not because such conduct is agreeable to us, but because it is the custom of the country, and they say the girls like it. We wish to learn all the curious outlandish ways of all the different countries, so that we can show off and astonish people when we get home. We wish to excite the envy of our untravelled friends with our strange foreign fashions which we can't shake off. All our passengers are paying strict attention to this thing, with the end in view which I have mentioned. The gentle reader will never, never know what a consummate ass he can become until he goes abroad. I speak now, of course, in the supposition that the gentle reader has not been abroad, and therefore is not already a consummate ass. If the case be otherwise, I beg his pardon, and extend to him the cordial hand of fellowship, and call him brother i shall always delight to meet an ass after my own heart when i shall have finished my travels on this subject let me remark that there are americans abroad in italy who have actually forgotten their mother tongue in three months forgot it in france they cannot even write their address in english in an hotel register i append these evidences which i copied verbatim from the register of a hotel in a certain italian city john p whitcomb William L. Ainsworth, travailleur. He meant traveler, I suppose. Etats-Unis. George P. Morton, fils d'Amérique. Lloyd B. Williams, et trois amis ville de Boston, Amérique. J. Ellsworth Baker, tout de suite de France, place de naissance Amérique. Destination la Grande-Bretagne. I love this sort of people. A lady passenger of ours tells of a fellow citizen of hers who spent eight weeks in Paris and then returned home and addressed his dearest old bosom friend herbert as mr herbert he apologized though and said upon my soul it is aggravating but i can't help it i have got so used to speaking nothing but french my dear herbert. damn there it goes again got so used to french pronunciation that i can't get rid of it it is positively annoying i assure you This entertaining idiot, whose name was Gordon, allowed himself to be hailed three times in the street before he paid any attention, and then begged a thousand pardons, and said he had grown so accustomed to hearing himself addressed as Monsieur Gordon, with a roll of the R, that he had forgotten the legitimate sound of his name. He wore a rose in his buttonhole, he gave the French salutation, two flips of the hand in front of the face he called paris paris in ordinary english conversation he carried envelopes bearing foreign postmarks protruding from his breast pocket he cultivated a moustache and imperial and did what else he could to suggest to the beholder his pet fancy that he resembled louis napoleon and in a spirit of thankfulness which is entirely unaccountable considering the slim foundation there was for it he praised his maker that he was as he was and went on enjoying his little life just the same as if he really had been deliberately designed and erected by the great architect of the universe think of our Whitcombs and our ainsworths and our williamses writing themselves down in dilapidated french in foreign hotel registers We laugh at Englishmen, when we are at home, for sticking so sturdily to their national ways and customs, but we look back upon it from abroad very forgivingly. It is not pleasant to see an American thrusting his nationality forward obtrusively in a foreign land, but, oh, it is pitiable to see him making of himself a thing that is neither male nor female, neither fish, flesh, nor fowl—a poor, miserable, hermaphrodite Frenchman. Among a long list of churches, art galleries, and such things visited by us in Venice, I shall mention only one—the Church of Santa Maria dei Frari. It is about five hundred years old, I believe, and stands on twelve hundred thousand piles. In it lie the body of Canova and the heart of Titian, in magnificent monuments. Titian died at the age of almost one hundred years a plague which swept away fifty thousand lives was raging at the time and there is notable evidence of the reverence in which the great painter was held in the fact that to him alone the state permitted a public funeral in all that season of terror and death in this church also is a monument to the doge foscari whose name a once resident of venice lord byron has made permanently famous the monument to the doge Giovanni Pesaro, in this church, is a curiosity in the way of mortuary adornment. It is eighty feet high, and is fronted like some fantastic pagan temple. Against it stand four colossal Nubians, as black as night, dressed in white marble garments. The black legs are bare, and through rents and sleeves and breeches the skin of shiny black marble shows. The artist was as ingenious as his funeral designs were absurd. There are two bronze skeletons bearing scrolls, and two great dragons uphold the sarcophagus. On high, amid all this grotesqueness, sits the departed doge. In the conventual buildings attached to this church are the State Archives of Venice. We did not see them, but they are said to number millions of documents. They are the records of centuries of the most watchful, observant, and suspicious government that ever existed, in which everything was written down and nothing spoken out. They fill nearly three hundred rooms. Among them are manuscripts from the archives of nearly two thousand families, monasteries, and convents. The secret history of Venice for a thousand years is here, its plots, its hidden trials, its assassinations, its commissions of hireling spies and masked bravos, food ready to hand for a world of dark and mysterious romances. Yes, I think we have seen all of Venice. We have seen in these old churches a profusion of costly and elaborate sepulchre ornamentation such as we never dreamt of before. We have stood in the dim religious light of these hoary sanctuaries, in the midst of long ranks of dusty monuments and effigies of the great dead of Venice, until we seem drifting back, back, back into the solemn past, and looking upon the scenes and mingling with the people of a remote antiquity. We have been in a half-waking sort of dream all the time. I do not know how else to describe the feeling. A part of our being has remained still in the nineteenth century, while another part of it has seemed in some unaccountable way walking among the phantoms of the tenth. We have seen famous pictures until our eyes are weary with looking at them, and refuse to find interest in them any longer. And what wonder, when there are twelve hundred pictures by Palma the Younger in Venice, and fifteen hundred by Tintoretto! And behold, there are Titians, and works of other artists in proportion. We have seen Titians' celebrated Cain and Abel, his David and Goliath, and Abraham's sacrifice. We have seen Tintoretto's monster picture, which is seventy-four feet long, and I do not know how many feet high, and thought it a very commodious picture. We have seen pictures of martyrs enough, and saints enough, to regenerate the world. I ought not to confess it, but still, since one has no opportunity in America to acquire a critical judgment in art, and since I could not hope to become educated in it in Europe in a few short weeks, I may therefore as well acknowledge, with such apologies as may be due, that to me it seemed that when I had seen one of these martyrs I had seen them all. They all have a marked family resemblance to each other they dress alike, in coarse monkish robes and sandals. They are all bald-headed, they all stand in about the same attitude, and without exception they are gazing heavenward with countenance which the Ainsworths, the Mortons, the Williamses, et fies, inform me are full of expression. To me there is nothing tangible about these imaginary portraits, nothing that I can grasp and take a living interest in if great Titian had only been gifted with prophecy, and had skipped a martyr, and gone over to England and painted a portrait of Shakespeare even as a youth, which we could all have confidence in now, the world down to the latest generations would have forgiven him the lost martyr in the rescued seer. I think posterity could have spared one more martyr for the sake of a great historical picture of Titian's time and painted by his brush, such as Columbus returning in chains from the discovery of a world, for instance. The old masters did paint some Venetian historical pictures, and these we did not tire of looking at, notwithstanding representations of the formal introduction of defunct doges to the Virgin Mary in regions beyond the clouds clashed rather harshly with the proprieties, it seemed to us. But, humble as we are, and unpretending in the matter of art, Our researches among the painted monks and martyrs have not been wholly in vain. We have striven hard to learn. We have had some success. We have mastered some things, possibly of trifling import in the eyes of the learned, but to us they give pleasure, and we take as much pride in our little acquirements as do others who have learned far more, and we love to display them full as well. When we see a monk going about with a lion and looking tranquilly up to heaven, we know that that is St. Mark. When we see a monk with a book and a pen, looking tranquilly up to heaven, trying to think of a word, we know that that is St. Matthew. When we see a monk sitting on a rock, looking tranquilly up to heaven, with a human skull beside him, and without other baggage, we know that that is St. Jerome, because we know that he always went flying light in the matter of baggage when we see a party looking tranquilly up to heaven unconscious that his body is shot through and through with arrows we know that that is saint sebastian when we see other monks looking tranquilly up to heaven but having no trademark we always ask who those parties are we do this because we humbly wish to learn We have seen thirteen thousand St. Jeromes, and twenty-two thousand St. Marks, and sixteen thousand St. Matthews, and sixty thousand St. Sebastians, and four millions of assorted monks undesignated, and we feel encouraged to believe that when we have seen some more of these various pictures, and had a larger experience, we shall begin to take an absorbing interest in them like our cultivated countrymen from Amérique. Now it does give me real pain to speak in this almost unappreciative way of the old masters and their martyrs, because good friends of mine in the ship, friends who do thoroughly and conscientiously appreciate them, and are in every way competent to discriminate between good pictures and inferior ones, have urged me for my own sake not to make public the fact that I lack this appreciation and this critical discrimination myself. I believe that what I have written, and may still write about pictures, will give them pain, and I am honestly sorry for it. I even promised that I would hide my uncouth sentiments in my own breast. But, alas, I never could keep a promise. I do not blame myself for this weakness, because the fault must lie in my physical organization. It is likely that such a very liberal amount of space was given to the organ which enables me to make promises that the organ which should enable me to keep them was crowded out. But I grieve not. I like no half-way things. I had rather have one faculty nobly developed than two faculties of mere ordinary capacity. I certainly meant to keep that promise, but I find I cannot do it. It is impossible to travel through Italy without speaking of pictures, and can I see them through other eyes? If I did not so delight in the grand pictures that are spread before me every day of my life by that monarch of all the masters, Nature, I should come to believe, sometimes, that I had in me no appreciation of the beautiful whatsoever. It seems to me that whenever I glory to think that for once I have discovered an ancient painting that is beautiful and worthy of all praise, the pleasure it gives me is an infallible proof that it is not a beautiful picture, and not in any wise worthy of commendation. This very thing has occurred more times than I can mention in Venice. In every single instance the guide has crushed out my swelling enthusiasm with the remark, It is nothing, it is of the Renaissance. I did not know what in the mischief the Renaissance was, and so always had to simply say, Ah, so it is, I had not observed it before. I could not bear to be ignorant before a cultivated negro, the offspring of a South Carolina slave, but it occurred too often, for even my self-complacency did that exasperating. It is nothing, it is of the Renaissance. I said at last, Who is this Renaissance? Where did he come from? Who gave him permission to cram the Republic with his execrable daubs? We learned then that Renaissance was not a man, that Renaissance was a term used to signify what was at best but an imperfect rejuvenation of art. The guide said that after Titian's time, and the time of the other great names we had grown so familiar with, high art declined. Then it partially rose again, an inferior sort of painters sprang up, and these shabby pictures were the work of their hands. Then I said in my heat that I wish to goodness high art had declined five hundred years sooner. The Renaissance pictures suit me very well, though sooth to say its school were too much given to painting real men, and did not indulge enough in martyrs. The guide I have spoken of is the only one we have had yet who knew anything. He was born in South Carolina, of slave parents. They came to Venice while he was an infant. He has grown up here. He is well educated. He reads, writes, and speaks English, Italian, Spanish, and French with perfect facility. Is a worshipper of art, and thoroughly conversant with it. Knows the history of Venice by heart, and never tires of talking of her illustrious career. He dresses better than any of us, I think, and is daintily polite. Negroes are deemed as good as white people in Venice, and so this man feels no desire to go back to his native land. His judgment is correct. I have had another shave. I was writing in our front room this afternoon, and trying hard to keep my attention on my work and refrain from looking out upon the canal. I was resisting the soft influence of the climate, as well as I could and endeavouring to overcome the desire to be indolent and happy. The boys sent for a barber. They asked me if I would be shaved. I reminded them of my tortures in Genoa, Milan, Como, of my declaration that I would suffer no more on Italian soil. I said, Not any for me, if you please. I wrote on. The barber began on the doctor. I heard him say, Dan, this is the easiest shave I have had since we left the ship. He said again presently, Why, Dan, a man could go to sleep with this man shaving him." Dan took the chair, and then he said, "'Why, this is Titian! This is one of the old masters!' I wrote on. Directly Dan said, "'Doctor, it is perfect luxury. The ship's barber isn't anything to him.' My rough beard was distressing me beyond measure. The barber was rolling up his apparatus. The temptation was too strong. I said, "'Hold on, please. Shave me also.' I sat down in the chair and closed my eyes. The barber soaped my face, and then took his razor and gave me a rake that well-nigh threw me into convulsions. I jumped out of the chair. Dan and the doctor were wiping blood off their faces and laughing. I said it was a mean disgraceful fraud. They said that the misery of this shave had gone so far beyond anything they had ever experienced before that they could not bear the idea of losing such a chance of hearing a cordial opinion from me on the subject. It was shameful! but there was no help for it. The skinning was begun and had to be finished. The tears flowed with every rake, and so did the fervent execrations. The barber grew confused, and brought blood every time. I think the boys enjoyed it better than anything they had seen or heard since they left home. We have seen the Campanile, and Byron's house, and Balby's, the geographer, and the palaces of all the ancient dukes and doges of venice and we have seen their effeminate descendants airing their nobility in fashionable french attire in the grand square of st mark and eating ices and drinking cheap wines instead of wearing gallant coats of mail and destroying fleets and armies as their great ancestors did in the days of venetian glory we have seen no bravos with poisoned stilettos no masks no wild carnival but we have seen the ancient pride of Venice, the grim bronze horses that figure in a thousand legends. Venice may well cherish them, for they are the only horses she ever had. It is said there are hundreds of people in this curious city who never have seen a living horse in their lives. It is entirely true, no doubt. And so, having satisfied ourselves, we depart to-morrow, and leave the venerable Queen of the Republics to summon her vanished ships and marshal her shadowy armies. And know again in dreams the pride of her old renown. End of chapter twenty three.